0: Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one, God's only one be one. This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey y'all, welcome back. We are on episode 26, which is July 1st through 7th, Acts 1 through 5, ye shall be witnesses unto me. And we had to say goodbye last time to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, But today we actually get to kind of continue on with Luke, and we're doing that with the book of Acts. So let's talk a little bit about Acts and what Acts is. So it's Acts of the Apostles is the actual name of the book, Um, and it's actually written by Luke. It's pretty much Luke Part (laughs) 2. So you take the Gospel of Luke, and he kind of pauses it, and then he goes on into the Acts of the Apostles. Um, And I want you to think about, like, you know... A big giant book that you've been reading, like, I don't know, Breaking Dawn in the Twilight series. Like, I read that book and I knew immediately where they were going to cut the movie into, right? So, right after the death and resurrection of Christ is a really good spot for Luke to kind of pause and then pick up his story again. Now, the reason that he did this, why he has two separate books, is because they were written on papyrus. And ancient books that are written on papyrus scrolls usually had a length limit. They wanted to limit those papyrus scrolls to about 35 feet in length. Because you get any longer than that, and when the scrolls are all rolled up, they're really heavy to kind of tote around. They're a little bit harder to carry around. So we've got two 35-foot papyrus scrolls. And on one of the scrolls is the Gospel of Luke, and on the other scroll is the Acts of the Apostles. So that's why we've got two different books. And, you know, Luke does a really good job of ending right at a really good point, and then picking up with the Acts of the Apostles. Now, interesting as well is the Gospel of Luke was a really quick time period. It was like year one to year three. It was just a couple years of the Savior's ministry, you know, like maybe three years or so of the Savior's ministry, whereas the Acts of the Apostles is like 30 years of the Savior's ministry. We're actually going to be covering from about 30 AD to 62 AD. And that's from the Seminary New Testament Manual. So again, you know, when I was talking before about in the different Gospels, we talk about like the disciples and I'm like, I think they were a whole lot younger than we thought they were. Because if you start looking at like the ages of Peter and Paul and all them, when we get to like the later section of Acts, um, they're still up and kicking and moving around and life spans were not that long, that long ago, right? So if they had been like 16 when Christ was crucified, then now they're going to be like 46 and still kind of carrying around and being able to travel and stuff like that. So that that makes sense to me that they were kind of like maybe late teens, early 20s, and that's why they're still alive at the end of the book of Acts. Okay, the book of Acts is the description of the fulfillment of the command Jesus gave his apostles to preach the gospel in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem And we see that in Luke 24-7. That's exactly what Luke says. From the New Testament seminary teacher manual, they kind of continue along the same theme where they're talking about spreading the gospel to all nations. And they say, through our study of this book, we will learn how the church of Jesus Christ began to spread from Jerusalem unto the uttermost part of the earth. Studying this book can help us see the wisdom of following modern prophets and apostles and can inspire us to boldly stand as witnesses of Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the things we're going to be seeing as we look at the Acts of the Apostles. We're going to be seeing how they stood as witnesses of Jesus Christ. We're going to see a lot of persecution in the early church and how they kind of stood up to that persecution and how they were able to stand boldly for the testimony of Christ. You know, we do see persecution in our everyday lives and we do like encounter it. you know on social media and stuff like that but I also think we face persecution in a spiritual sense too where we're constantly being attacked our testimonies are constantly being attacked by Satan in various ways and in various formats so I think that there are things in the book of Acts that will also help us stand boldly against the temptations of Satan as well. The Acts of the Apostles is not the name that Luke gave to the book. I don't know what name Luke gave to the book. Um, That has been lost to time. But the Acts of the Apostles is actually the name that Irenaeus, who was a Greek bishop in the second century of the church, um, he actually is the one who named it the Acts of the Apostles, which is why we have it today as Acts. Um, Together, Luke and Acts equals about 27% of the New Testament, making Luke the highest contributor to the New Testament. More of his words are in the New Testament than anybody else's. Even with Paul's, like, you know, epistles and stuff like that, Luke still has more wordage in the New Testament. Both of the books are addressed to Luke's friend Theophilus, which is interesting because Theophilus means lover of God. So my question is, and I've never been able to find a source that proves this either way, is Theophilus an actual person? Or is it just anyone who loves God and wants to come close to God? So, like, he could actually be writing this book to us because we, are like Theophilus, love God and want to come closer to God. So I don't necessarily know that Theophilus is, like, a legit person. Maybe he was. Maybe that was really his name. Maybe it's, you know, a pseudonym. I don't know. But that's what Theophilus is, is the lover of God. So that's just a little bit about the history of the book of Acts. Kind of gives you, like, a, you know, starting point as we go into our study of the Acts of the Apostles. So a quick summary of what we're going to talk about this week. We've got, after Christ has come back, he spends about 40 days with his apostles, ascends up into heaven, and then we have the day of Pentecost, where everyone's given the gift of the Holy Ghost. We have Peter and John, and they heal a lame man at the temple, and then they're taken before the council of the Sadducees and high priests, and kind of, they get to testify there. The saints all come together. The early church is really good. And then we have Ananias and Sapphira that steal from the church, and we're going to talk a little bit more about them. But that's kind of what we got going on this week, okay? Alright, so now let's jump right on into Come, Follow Me. And in the Come, Follow Me introduction for this week, it says, in the books of Acts, you will read powerful declarations about Jesus Christ and his gospel. You will also see how the gospel can change people, including you, into the valiant disciples God knows that they can be. And that's what I see a lot. You know, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the story of the lame man. But God takes us where we are, and he makes us better than we ever could possibly think of. And I think about this early church where, you know, it was struggling. No one thought it would succeed. There was no reason for it to succeed except for that it was of God. And God grew it into this amazing, you know, I mean, gospel of Jesus Christ that we have even today just because of these early followers in the church. So it's going to be really cool to kind of see there little adventures that they take as they begin to grow. The first section is Jesus Christ directs his church through the Holy Ghost, and it says the book of Acts records the apostles' efforts to establish the church of Jesus Christ after the Savior's ascension. Although Jesus Christ was no longer on the earth, he directed the church by revelation through the Holy Ghost. Consider how the Holy Ghost guided the new leaders of Christ's church as you review the following passages. Alright, the first passage is Acts 1, 1 through 1-8. This is where Jesus is about to go up into heaven and he's kind of telling them his last final words. And in 8 he actually says, "...but ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, unto the uttermost part of the earth." And what I see there from that particular section, again the question is, consider how the Holy Ghost guided the new leaders of Christ church. Um, how he guided them there. He's telling them right now that the Holy Ghost has come to be their guide, and he's going to help them to be witnesses. And witnesses not just in Jerusalem, but all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth. So I see there that the Holy Ghost is helping them to witness and to be, you know, to spread out, past their little comfort bubbles out into the big world. Alright, next 1, 15-26 is the next section. Come follow me and ask us to look at how did the Holy Ghost guide us here. This is where they are choosing Judas's replacement. You know, Judas has had an untimely end, a bad end, and so now they've got an opening in the twelve apostles. And so who are they going to pick? And in 23 it says, And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed, and they said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place and they gave forth their lots and the lot fell upon Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And so what's interesting to me here is it's a very similar method that I've had whenever I've been in presidencies where I've had to choose counselors or, you know, even, you know, as primary president, who I have to choose is like my teachers and things like that when I'm responsible. It's a very interesting method because it's I do something very similar. I don't draw names out of lots, you know, I don't draw names out of a hat or whatever. But I definitely use my rational mind to to narrow down the list of people who I think, you know, would be a good fit for that spot. And then I pray about him, and I kind of just go down the line praying about them. Um, and sometimes, you know, a name will pop out and sometimes it will be like, any of these could be good, you know. And it's interesting. So I, I like the way that they describe this because it's also a similar pattern that I've seen in my own life. So that's how they decided who the new disciple was going to be. All right, how did the Holy Ghost help guide the early church in 2, 1 through 42? Okay, so this is going to be about the day of Pentecost. And, you know, we refer to it as the day of Pentecost, but I was kind of like, what is the Pentecost part of it? Like, I always, when people say Pentecost, I think back to this moment of, you know, the gift of the Holy Ghost coming out. But Pentecost is actually a Jewish festival, which is why everybody was at Jerusalem. Um, And it's actually known as the Festival of Shavuot, And so that was kind of like a harvest festival, but it now also commemorates the giving of the law in the Torah. Okay, so we're grateful for the law, we're grateful for the harvest, that's kind of what they're celebrating during the festival of Shavuot. But that's why we have people from all over the place that are in Jerusalem, because they've come in for this festival. And so when the day of Pentecost comes, and you know, the whole room's filled up with the Holy Ghost, and they all kind of get that gift of the Holy Ghost, and they're speaking in tongues, the people who are from all these different countries and all these different nationalities are in Jerusalem for this festival are able to understand what the people are saying about Christ as they testify about Christ. And they're able to understand it in their own tongues, even though they speak a different language than what the people at the church were saying. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I hope so. But so that's how the Holy Ghost helped in that particular situation, is it gave them the ability to understand the testimony and the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though they weren't hearing it in their own language. Also, it helped those who were in the multitude listening, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, whoever they were, be pricked in their hearts. And we read in thirty seven two thirty seven now when they heard this they were pricked in their hearts and that was the holy ghost bearing witness to them and said unto peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I love that there, because we have pretty much the fourth article of faith right there. They had faith when they were pricked in their heart, right? And they had faith even to ask Peter and the rest of the apostles, like, they don't know who these guys are. But they're asking, hey, so I feel something in my heart. What do I need to do? And Peter says, okay, so you've got faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, repentance. Repentance. He tells them to repent. Third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And fourth, the laying on hands of the gift of the Holy Ghost. Right? And so we've got the fourth article of faith right there, and it's in verses 37 through 38. So that's pretty cool. All right, the next section that can follow me, how did the Holy Ghost guide the early church in chapters 4, 1 through 3? And so this is where Peter and John have been arrested after healing the lame guy, and they have been brought before a council of the Jewish elders. And Peter is able to testify before the council that Jesus is the Christ and salvation comes through him. Even though he's testifying to kind of a hostile audience, he's still able to stand up and speak eloquently. And, you know, something that was interesting to me as I was reading this week is the Peter that we meet and Acts is totally different from the Peter that we saw in the Gospels. And I think that a lot of maturing happened over the last week of Christ's life and during his death and resurrection. I think a lot of instruction probably happened from Christ directly to Peter when he was there for those 40 days. Peter has matured, big time. Big time. And so when I see his testimony here, I'm like, How is this the same guy? I mean, you think about about Peter who's like jumping out of boats and walking on water and Peter who's like, I will die for you and then like six hours later, Oh, I don't know him. I don't know him. You know, that same Peter now is standing up and saying Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people, and ye elders of Israel, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him did this man stand here before you whole. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we may be saved." Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they were probably like, uh, isn't this the same Peter we just saw, like, you know, a couple weeks ago? Okay, they marveled. I'm marveling too. I understand you, Sadducees. I'm marveling as well. And they took knowledge of him, that he had been with Jesus. So, the Holy Ghost emboldened Peter to be able to speak like that in front of the assembly. Okay, so this next section in Come Follow Me, How Did the Holy Ghost Guide the Early Church in Acts chapter 4, verses 31 through 33. And so this section, this is where after Peter and John have been released by the council and they come back to their little flock the little church prays together and they kind of come together and it says and when they had prayed the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness and for such a young flock who doesn't really know the gospel of Jesus Christ super well because they've just been introduced to it think about like converts that we have today in our church they spoke the word of God with boldness and that's what the Holy Ghost was able to to give them. And in 32, it says, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. And that's something else that the Holy Ghost can give us, is that love that we have for each other and the way we can thrive together. And, you know, kind of hold on to one another and talks about, you know, they didn't possess anything of their own. Everything they had was in common. Um, That's kind of hard to do without the Holy Ghost as well, right? And the last thing we see from 33 is that, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And I love that last phrase, and great grace was upon them all. When you have the Holy Ghost with you, you have the grace of Jesus Christ with you as well. Alright, so the next part of this section, the next question it asks after you go through those different sections of what we read this week. It asks, what are some of the assignments, callings, or responsibilities that the Lord has given to you? And what do you learn from the experiences of the early apostles about how you can rely on the Holy Ghost to guide you? And, you know, immediately, the first thing I always think of is church callings and stuff like that, or even jobs and stuff. But as I was pondering upon it this week, the responsibility that came to me that the Lord has given to me specifically is the responsibility of being a mother. And my path to becoming a mother was a little bit different than most. I was single, and I met my husband, or the man who would be my husband. And at the time, he was a single father. Um, His first wife has passed away, and he had this precious little boy. Um, He would just turned two when I met him, and that's my son now. So we dated for a couple months, maybe two or three months before we were engaged, and we were engaged for nine months before we were married. And so... I joke all the time that, you know, you know, other mothers have nine months knowing that a kid is coming into their life. And I had nine months knowing that a kid was coming into my life. And so I had nine months to prepare myself kind of to be a mother. But like all other mothers, you know, you're not really prepared. Like nothing can prepare you for the shock of having a kid in your life. All of a sudden, I am a wife and mother to a three-year-old. Um, you know, and coming into this, this poor little three-year-old, I mean, he'd been living with my husband and his parents. So he'd been living with grandma and grandpa who are kind of, you know, spoiling him rotten. And, you know, so there was, there was some stuff on his end that behavior-wise we needed to correct as well. And, um, it was, it was a total shell shock moment. But beyond that, I really felt the Holy Ghost guiding me and lifting me through those first couple of months and years that we were married as my son grew and as I was able to kind of help shape him into the person that he is today. And I think he's a pretty cool kid today. But over the years, that's I've seen the Holy Ghost work in my life. When I'm talking to my son or when I'm discussing things with him, the Holy Ghost will kind of like poke me in the back of the head and be like, hey, ask him about this. Or he'll ask me a question and I'll say, uh, and then the Holy Ghost says, oh, say this, and I'll say something, you know? Um, And it's interesting to me the way that the Holy Ghost works in my responsibility as a mother that I take so seriously to be able to really work that relationship out with my kid. I don't know, that's one of the things that I thought of. That's one of the callings and responsibilities, I guess, that the Lord has given to me. And what I learned from the experiences of the early apostles um, is to be prompted to stand for truth, as a mother and tell my kid when he is messed up and when he needs to do better. Also to stand as an example when I mess up and tell him, you know, oh yeah, dude, I messed up. I'm sorry. I need to do better too. You know, and kind of role model that for him. And then again, that, that last phrase that I really love, the great grace was upon them all so that when I mess up and I do say something that's not right or that the Holy Ghost didn't prompt me to say, that grace is there to not only give me forgiveness, but also to heal whatever, you know, hurt I may have inflicted upon my son. And we can practice repentance and forgiveness there as well. So great grace was upon them all. I think that's good for all parents, just a reminder that, you know, we do stuff that messes up our kids. We do. There's no way to be a perfect parent. But grace is with you as you parent. And great grace is upon them all. Our kids are going to be okay. Do the very best job that you can do. And grace fills in a lot of the imperfections that we cast with our parenting, I think. Alright, next section. Oh, I'm really excited to talk about this one. Okay. What is the purpose of the gift of tongues? Tongues. Okay, so the gift of tongues is sometimes characterized as speaking in a language no one understands. And I just love this part. Because in the South, we have a lot of fundamentalist type churches. And they believe in the speaking of tongues. And it, when they speak in tongues, it comes out kind of gibberishy. Um, if you want to learn more about this, there's actually a book out there that's called Salvation on Sand Mountain by Dennis Covington. He was a New York Times reporter who came down from New York to Scottsboro, Alabama, which is a little town that's like maybe 45 minutes away from me. And he kind of infiltrated this group of, you know, fundamentalists christians there they handle snakes they're snake handlers and um, they spoke in tongues and they drank poison because you know there's all these different scriptures that say you should be able to handle serpents and serpents won't harm you you'll be able to ingest poisons and the poisons won't hurt you and you'll be able to speak in tongues and so there's like this whole culture thing that we got going on down here with um the whole speaking in tongues thing so this was super interesting to me all right so we continue on with come follow me However, the prophet Joseph Smith referred to the events in Act 2 to clarify that this gift of the Spirit is given for the purpose of preaching the gospel among those whose language is not understood. As on the day of Pentecost, the ultimate design of the gift of tongues is to speak to foreigners. Come Follow Me continues, The Feast of Pentecost, a major Jewish holiday, brought Jews from many nations to Jerusalem. The gift of tongues allowed these visitors to understand the apostles' words in their native language. And I really like this explanation because we have Joseph Smith who's talking about the gift of tongues helps you to speak to those who don't speak the same tongue you do and to be understood. And then you also have the opposite of that where people can speak something and the listeners can understand through the gift of tongues. Right? So it, it goes two ways. The gift of tongues can go go two ways. And so it was really nice to hear that because especially with the gift of tongues here in the South is associated with all of like kind of the weird woo-woo stuff, you know, in the fundamentalist area. So the gift of tongues, though, it's something I actually think I have one of those gifts of tongue. I cannot speak foreign languages to save my life, so it's definitely not that one. But I can understand Foreign languages fairly easily. And I've seen this a couple different times in my life, and I don't necessarily know that it's a gift of the spirit as much as it is just the way my brain works. Um, I took like six years of French. I took two years in high school and then four years every year that I was at BYU. And I even took a class in French, the French literary history class. I took totally completely in French, wrote papers in French. I'm really, really bad at speaking it, though. Like, I cannot speak it, and even when I do, it's with a southern accent, so it's like, Je parle Francais, right? It's really ugly. It's not, not nice at all, but I can understand French. Like, when I was taking that French class, like, I was reading the books. No problem whatsoever. It's just the speaking it out loud part that I have a problem with. And another place I saw this, and this is where it had actual application in my life, was 12 years ago. I went on a professional study exchange to the Czech Republic. Um, and I went there specifically to study the libraries there and learn kind of about how communism had impacted freedom of speech and libraries and stuff there. Um, and it was a six-week immersive program where you know i was going to all these different areas in the czech republic and in slovakia my grandmother is from the czech republic so it was really cool i had a great time but czech is a very difficult language to learn some people take up to seven years to learn how to speak it fluently so i was under no illusions when i went there that i would have any ability to really communicate with these people and for the most part when we stayed in the bigger cities like prague and Pilsen and things like that we were able to communicate pretty well, especially with like the younger kids, because younger kids spoke English. They're all taught English in school, super easy. But when we went into like the outer reaches of Bohemia um, in different areas, no one spoke English. They all spoke Czech. And I knew like two Czech phrases. <laughs> and the first one was how to ask for ice cream in Czech. Jedna zimrzlina prosim. Okay. The second one is how to ask for hot chocolate in Czech. Jedna hórka kokolada prosim. Right. I also know how to say Dobry Den, which is like, hello. So those are like the three things I know how to say in Czech. Right. The program that I was in would pair us up with these host families. They didn't speak super good English. I didn't speak super good Czech. But I was able to understand many times what they were saying. We were actually in a museum in one spot, and I'm with a couple of my teammates. They were also from the States as well. And we're sitting there, and there's a conversation going on, a really heated conversation between two of our hosts, and they're speaking in Czech back and forth. And one turns around and walks off. And one of my teammates asked, what's what's going on and I was like oh someone locked their keys in the car and they're really upset they're going to have to call someone to come unlock the car and the host that was still with us whipped around and he's like do you speak Czech and I was like no And he's like, how did you know that? I was like, "Mm, I just did. And I think it was because I picked up a couple of different key phrases in there. I don't know. You know, so there's just times where like I've been in foreign countries and stuff and I just understand what people are saying. And I think that even comes across in English because I'll be talking to someone and maybe they're having a hard time phrasing something and I understand what they're trying to say just kind of from context clues and things like that. That's something, a gift that I think I've been given and I see it manifest in interesting ways in my life, not always having to do with the spirit again. So I don't necessarily know that it's a spiritual gift. I think maybe it's just the way my brain works, but it is something where I can feel a kinship with those who are there at the day of Pentecost, where they're sitting there in a land that they don't understand the language and these people are testifying to them of Jesus Christ, but yet they're still able to understand. And I kind of figure out like, you know, how they do that. Alright, the next section and Come Follow Me. The first principles and ordinances of the gospel help me come unto Christ. We've already talked a little bit about that. You know, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, the fourth article of faith, we talked a little bit about that. Have you ever felt pricked in your heart, like the Jews on the day of Pentecost? Maybe you did something you regret, or maybe you simply want to change your life. What should you do when you have those feelings? And I was trying to think of recent examples of when I have felt that. And I think... One of the most recent examples I can think of is social media. When I post something that at the time I'll think it's fine and I'll post it, but then a couple hours later I'm like, "Mm, yeah, I shouldn't have posted that. And I'll go back and I'll take it down. Um, that was probably one of the most recent experiences I could think of. And there's, you know, I mean, there's other times where I'm like, Ooh, I shouldn't have said that. And I'll go back and I'll say something, you know, I'm sorry I said that. Please don't take that the wrong way. I didn't mean it, you know, and I have to say that. There's different, just different times like that. And so what I do whenever I feel that pricking of the spirit is, you know, you have to do a U-turn, you know, the direction I'm going, this is the spirit telling me that this is not the right way to go. And I need to do a U-turn and repent. So that's kind of what I see that. And then Peter's counsel to the Jews is found in Acts 2, 38. Note how the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost, affected the converts as recorded in Acts 23, 37 through 47. As they went through the different steps that Peter described there, in 41 we read, And they gladly received his word and were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them, unto the church, about 3,000 souls. Okay, by just applying these first principles and ordinances of the gospel, 3,000 people were baptized into this little fledgling church, right? And I don't know the numbers of what the congregation was there at the day of Pentecost. I can't imagine it being more than 100 people probably. And so if you have... You know, like maybe about 100 people, let's say, and then they're able to convert 3,000 people, that is definitely an example of loaves and fishes being multiplied and made so much more than it would be on its own. And that's what the gospel of Christ is able to do when we have the Holy Ghost with us, when we testify of Christ, when we bring that light into others' lives, that's what happens you know it multiplies and it expands out and it grows and the church grows and the gospel grows and people are brought into christ and it's just amazing all right come follow me continues you may have already been baptized and received the gift of the holy ghost so how do you continue to apply this doctrine of christ consider these words from elder dale g renland we may be perfected by repeatedly exercising faith in christ by repenting and partaking of the sacrament to renew the covenants and blessings of baptism, by receiving the Holy Ghost as a constant companion to a greater degree, as we do so, we become more like Christ and are more able to endure to the end with all that that entails. Alright, right, so he's basically saying, and this is even in my mind, I thought the fourth article of faith, have faith, repent, be baptized, Holy Ghost, that was something that happened when I was eight years old. Like, that's what I thought. But having looked at this quote from Elder Runland and thinking about it this week, I realized that no, that's this is something that happens over and over and over again in my life. Every time I come on Sunday to sacrament meeting, I need to make sure that I have faith to be there, that I'm repented before I take the sacrament, that I take the sacrament, renew those baptismal covenants, and then after that strive to have the Holy Ghost with me. You know, the laying on hands dip for the gift of the Holy Ghost, strive to have that gift of the Holy Ghost with me as I go throughout the rest of my week, right? So that fourth article of faith actually applies to us every single day not just when we were eight years old and baptized all right next section and come follow me disciples of jesus christ are given power to perform miracles in his name and this is all about the lame man there you know at the gate of the temple the lame man was hoping to receive money from those who came to the temple but the lord's servants offered him much more as you read acts 3 4 1 through 31 5, 12 through 42 consider how the miracle that followed affected and it gives different people and we're going to talk about each one of those okay so i want to start out though it mentions acts 3 and 4 and 5 but i want to like rewind back into acts 2 acts 2 43 and it says and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles so This isn't the first wonder or sign that was done by the apostles. This is just an example of one of them. So I think that's important to point out. I think also possibly why Luke included this was because this sign and wonder led to some persecution among the early saints. And I think that it was kind of an important plot point because of that. It's the first time that Peter and John really come on the Sadducees' radar because of what happened here. All right, so in Acts 3, we read that now Peter and John went up in, together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. Now, what's interesting here is they're still going to the Jewish temple. I don't believe that they're going because they're worshiping as Jews anymore. In fact, there's an hour of sacrifice that comes before the hour of prayer. And you notice they didn't show up for the hour of sacrifice because they are well aware that the sacrifice, the law of sacrifice, has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Right? So they didn't need that anymore. But they still pray. Right, So they can still go and participate in prayer. And I think that they went there not necessarily to worship as Jews, but to go there as a missionary opportunity would be my guess as to why they are going to the temple for the hour of prayer. And in two we read, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. And this was one of my first questions. I'm like, what is the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful? Like, what is this beautiful gate that they're talking about? I want to know. And so I looked it up for you. Alright, so the Jewish historian Josephus describes this gate on the Temple Mount. It is made of fine Corinthian brass. It is 75 feet high. Okay, 75 feet high. Think about how tall that is. That's really tall, right? And it has huge double doors. And it said that it is so beautiful that it greatly excelled those doors that were only covered with silver and gold. Alright, so apparently it's this really shiny, beautiful gate there at the temple and everyone just knew it as like the beautiful gate that's kind of what it was called right and so this man's laying there at the beautiful gate trying to you know beg he's he's asking for money and smart guy that he is he picks this beautiful gate because he's probably not real beautiful looking himself and so the contrast probably between him and the beautiful gate probably made his situation look a little bit more dire and people are probably more likely to you know give him a few coins and things like that. In verse three, we say this man who's seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked an alms. Now, interesting to this, he doesn't know who Peter and John are, and he wasn't asking to be healed. He just wanted help in his current position. You know, he's not saying, hey, heal me so I can walk and dance around. He's saying, hey, do you got 25 cents? Like, that's literally what he's saying. Like, do you, do you have a few coins that you can put in my cup? Like, come on. It's interesting because... We're going to see the way that they heal him in just a minute. They give him some worth something worth way more than whatever little piddly amount of coins that they could have put in his little cup, right? And Christ is the same way with us. We come to him and we're like, hey, so, you know, can you help me in this situation that I'm in? And kind of, you know, I, I don't need a whole lot. I'm just going to kind of ask you for for this little thing. And he's like, no, I'm going to like explode your mind with blessings. I'm going to make you something totally different make you a totally different creature in christ and make your life totally different than you thought it would turn out and so he takes us from being a little lame guy sitting next to gate beautiful and turns us into someone who is leaping and dancing which is what the lame guy is going to do here in a minute and in verse 4 peter fastening his eyes upon him with john said look on us and he gave heed unto them and also, I will say this too, as someone who's begging by the gate beautiful, how many people do you think came by and did not make eye contact with him? You know, they just walked by or just dropped a few coins and kept going. But Peter and John look at him, and they see him as a child of God who needs help. And he looks them in the eyes. How many people had just passed by not given him even that respect? And Peter and John do that, and I think that's really nice of them. And Peter said in 6, Silver and gold have I none. I don't have anything to give you. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And this is where it asks you the different people, you know, who are in this miracle and their different reactions to it. So this is the lame man's reaction to this miracle. He stood up leaping and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. I mean, do you think he'd be able to go to the temple before this? I don't know. Maybe some well-meaning friends or relatives were able to carry him into the temple for various prayer services and things like that, but he wasn't able to go easily. So it's interesting to me that the moment that he's healed, the first place he goes is into the temple. And I love that he's not just like walking, but he is walking and leaping. Like I have this picture of like this older guy, you know, just jumping up and down and dancing around and being so happy and praising God. And that was his reaction to the miracle. All right. And the people, what was the reaction of the witnesses of this miracle? All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was him which had sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened unto him. So that was the reaction of people was to be filled with wonder and amazement. And then we read in verse 11, And as the lame man which was healed by Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. So there was great wonder among the people about how did this happen? How is this guy walking? How did Peter and John do this? Like, lots of wondering, okay? The next person that we're going to be looking at is Peter and John. What were Peter and John's reactions to this? And when Peter saw it, he saw them greatly wondering. He answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel! Why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? So his response is very humble. He's like, why are you looking at us like we have great power or ability? Because even though we do, it's from Jesus Christ. It's not our own power or ability. We're not generating this. We are just a conduit for it, basically, is what he's saying. And then the next person that they ask about, dun-dun-dun, the high priests and rulers enter the scene. All right, and so they get wind of what has happened at the temple. The Sadducees are a big part of this. Remember, the Sadducees are in charge of the temple. They're the ones who are in charge of handling the money at the temple. We read in chapter 4, verse 1, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees also do not believe in the resurrection. Okay, they're Sadducee because they don't believe in the resurrection, remember? So they don't believe in the resurrection of dead. And that is what, you know, Peter and John are preaching as they talk about, you know, look, we've restored this man to be whole. You guys are going to be restored to be whole after you die. Like, the resurrection comes through Jesus Christ. That's what they're preaching. And the Sadducees and the Jewish elders are like, "Uh uh-uh, no. And so they arrest them, they take them into their council. Peter goes and he he testifies to them of Jesus Christ, that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Beautiful testimony, strong testimony, a big witness through the Holy Ghost to them of what Jesus Christ is and what he can do for us. And the Jewish elders, this is what they say in 16. What shall we do to these men? For indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them and is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among this people, let us straightly threaten them, that they shall speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. you think Peter and John are going to listen to that? Not at all. They're going to keep preaching and teaching. But it's interesting to me that they note that, yeah, there's a miracle that has been done, and we can't deny it because so many people saw it. So we're just going to tell them not to talk about it. But yeah, they don't listen. And then the other saints, what was their reaction to the miracle that happened to the lame man? The other saints, we read in 24, when they heard that, they lifted up their voices to God. They prayed and they were happy and they rejoiced in the power that Peter and John had and that they were able to do this miracle. So that was pretty cool. I like that story a lot, the lame man there. All right, so let's move on into our ideas for family scripture study and family home evening. How is the man at the temple blessed differently than he was expecting? And how have we seen Heavenly Father's blessings come to us in unexpected ways? Um, You know, I told you a little bit about the story about my son, you know, a few minutes ago. But that was one of the biggest blessings in my life, my husband and my son. And it came to me in a very unexpected way. I'd been back from BYU for a couple years here in Huntsville. Um, I dated a few different people kind of on and off. There was no one that I really clicked with. And I was really thinking, I'm like, I'm going to have to move to a bigger city because there's just not any guys my age, you know, not any members of my church guys my age that I can date and really think about marrying. I'm like, I'm going to have to move somewhere. I really think I am. And then I was like, well, no, I trust God, you know, it's going to be okay. And so... I was just really struggling, you know? I was single, and I didn't have any prospects on the horizon. I was just really kind of struggling. And I finally got to the point, I'm like, you know what? God's going to make this happen in his own time. But until then, I'm just going to keep going on like I trust in him, and I believe in him, and I'm just going to keep living my life the way I am. And then if a guy shows up, it'll be a pleasant surprise, right? And so I was actually in the middle of house hunting. I was hunting for a house to buy in my area so I could settle down as a single woman. I was going to buy my own home. And I would found a house I really liked. It was pink. Like all over the outside was pink. And I loved it and was so excited about that. And like I was really getting excited about it. And then a friend of mine was like, Hey, I need you to come help volunteer at this event. It's like it's called Santa's Village. It's this big Christmas event that we do every year and there's like this little workshop where you get to pretend to be one of Santa's elves and you get to help kids put together a craft. And my friend was coordinating the volunteers in the workshop and she's like, I really need volunteers. Can you come help me? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll totally come help in the workshop, Santa's workshop. That's, that's fine. It's with kids. I love it. It's awesome. So I show up to come work and she has put me at a table next to this guy that she works with who's a single dad and he was not a member of my church. And so, you know we're talking or whatever and we kind of realize that we have some stuff in common and it turns out it's my now husband right and so when I first met him though I was like nope not for me number one he's not a member of my church and number two he has a kid and I am not taking on that responsibility like I'm just not doing it like it's too much responsibility I cannot do this I'm just gonna keep going my own way buying my pink house and keep like you know moving along with life but You know, through several instances of the Holy Ghost kind of hitting me over the head with a two-by-four, I realized, I'm like, no, this is the man I am supposed to marry. And eventually, you know, my husband took the discussions, he got baptized, we were able to be married in the temple, and I became a mom. And years later, when we found out that this was going to be my one child, that, you know, I didn't have the chance to have any other children, I realized what a blessing these two were in my life. You know, I'd been praying for years, looking for the right man. And lucky girl that I am, the Lord blessed me with two, two good men, my husband and my son. And no, my life does not look anything like I thought it would. But both of them have been such a blessing in my life and such a strength and just support to me. I'm so grateful that they both are in my life. And so that was a way that the Lord blessed me completely differently than a way that I thought he would. Um, Like that lame man, you know, I was just expecting a couple little coins in, in my cup. And instead he picked me up and let me walk. I have a child. You know, I physically am not able to have a child but I have a child and that is such a blessing I have a husband who loves me yeah we have issues with the church and whatnot but he is one of my biggest cheerleaders one of my strongest supporters he is my rock and my stable place and in case you can't tell I'm very strong-willed and very opinionated so it wouldn't be easy for just any man to take like the hot mess that is me on But he does, and he's able to be my equal. And so I'm so grateful for both him and my son. That was a huge blessing that I was not expecting and did not come in the way that I expected it to come. All right, next section in Ideas for Family and Scripture Study, your family might enjoy acting out the lesson of Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, so I want to talk about Ananias and Sapphira because I think their story is really interesting. It's not super uplifting or anything, but it's interesting. All right, so we are in, this is Acts 5, but I want to back on up, rewind, back up into Acts 4. Acts 4, verses 34. So we read that neither was there any among them that lacked, this is the saints, the little group church there, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of things that were sold, and they laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according to what he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of Consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And apparently this was like a really nice gesture. Maybe, you know, the church really applauded Barnabas for this. Like it was a really good thing. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they're like, hmm, we want people to think nice things about us too. And so they went and they sold some land. But then they talk together, and they're like, no, we're going to keep some of the money back. So we read in Acts 5, verse 2. They kept back part of the price, and his wife also was privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they get the sum that they were given for the amount of land that they brought, and they kept back part of it. Okay? Now, kept back. In Greek, the word that is used here is a very interesting word, nosphysome, and it actually means to steal or theft. The only other place that it's used in the New Testament is in Titus 2.10, where it's purloining is the way that it's translated there. So, kept back, stealing, robbing, basically robbing God, right? Um, Another thing that's interesting to note about nosphysome is that it's actually a homonym, Um, It is spelled N-O-S-P-H-I-Z-O-M-A-I and the Greek word for sickness or feeling sick is spelled N-O-S-F-I-Z-O-M-A-I. So now, fisome, as it was like stealing and wrong, that had the PH in it, whereas feeling sick and unwell has the F in it for that F sound, right? So I thought that was interesting that sickness and stealing have, are kind of homonyms there in the Greek language. You know, when you steal something, you're kind of sick in the spirit. I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. All right. So they kept back, they stole a part of it, kept it back, and then they put the rest at the feet of the apostles. All right. And then Peter says unto Ananias, Why has Satan filled thine heart? To lie to the Holy Ghost. Which I think is important at this point because he's lying to the Holy Ghost, meaning Peter's referring to the Holy Ghost as an individual. And to keep back part of the price of the land. While it's remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? So what he's saying is like, you know, when you had the land, it was your own land. That's cool, dude. When you sold it, you had the money. That's cool. But don't walk on up here and pretend to give everything you have to the church when you are not, in fact, giving everything you have to the church. You're holding some back. Like, that's not okay. And Peter says, why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, when hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all those who heard these things. Well, great fear would come upon me, too. I think maybe Ananias, you know, having shock and fear out of being, like, called out like this in front of a crowd... Um, maybe it was a heart attack. Maybe it was something like that. Also, I think, I wonder, was Peter expecting this? Like, did he know that this was going to happen? Or was he kind of shocked, too, when Ananias just kind of went face down? Um, like, what? What just What just happened here? <laughs> like, what did, What did I do? I didn't zap him, guys. I promise. <laughs> you know, I don't know if something like that went down. All right. And they take him out. They bury him. And about three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, shows up. And he says, So tell me how much you sold the land for. And she says, This amount. And in nine, Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out too. And then she fell straight away at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, carried her forth, and buried her by her husband. So whether or not Peter knew about Ananias when he first, you know, told him, I don't know, maybe he was shocked, but I think he probably knew what would happen when Sapphira came in. And so that's why he had the young men there ready to bury her too. So, same thing. Law of Moses, you know, this would have been somebody else there carrying out this particular punishment. But instead, we find that the punishment for sin is in our heart, and, you know, repentance needs to come from there, too. So, I think that's an interesting contrast. And the last thing that I think is interesting about this particular story is in 11, it says, "...and great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things." And this is actually the first instance in the New Testament that we have the word church. They first refer to themselves as a church. And the word that's actually used, the Greek word that's actually used that they translate here for church is ecclesia. Which, you know, I mean, even I can hear ecclesia. That sounds like, you know, ecclesiastical. I'm sure that's where we get the word ecclesiastical from. Um, so yeah, so ecclesia. This is the first time that this word makes an appearance in the New Testament. The first time that the little followers of Christ, the congregation of Christ, is referred to as a church. So that's a pretty cool moment there too. So interesting stuff this week. Good stories. Good stories. I'm excited to continue on with the Apostles and Peter and John. I can't wait for Paul to join us because Paul's one of my favorites. So, good stuff's coming up. I hope you guys have a great week. Thank you for listening, and I will see you guys here next time. Bye, y'all. The Savior said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions, and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at said at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.